TED Audio Collective. Dear listeners, not surprisingly, lots of you have told us that you are in relationships where both you and your partner have careers. Both of us work a lot and have jobs that have a lot of responsibilities. Many of you are trading family and financial responsibilities back and forth between you and your partner. When we moved across the country, I uh, was taking care of our brand new little baby, supporting my wife as she started her business. Some of you have children and even businesses together. We have uh, two kids, a house, a cat, and a company. We are colleagues and, and lovers and parents and, well, persons who want to have a social life at the same time. And uh, we try to make it work. But no matter what your situation, gay, straight, kids or no kids, all of you have said that there are times in your relationships, specific moments, when being part of a couple and having a career, well, it causes friction. I'm the one arriving home in time to make dinner every night. And I'm working with feeling resentful and angry that that's falling to me. And um, he's feeling guilty and conflicted about wanting to do well at work, but also wanting to be an equal partner at home. My last job sent me over the edge and it took me so long to figure out that I needed to leave. And it put a strain on the relationship. He's a dentist, I work in IT. And I think since our little boy has come along, it has become a lot more difficult. I don't know whether it will work because of our different personalities. I really hope that it does work. Oh, I hope it works too. Because amidst all the equal opportunity, many of us are discovering that combining careers with long-term love is tough. Absolutely. We are the first generation that is really struggling with these questions. This is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work. A lot of people are struggling in silence and not realizing that other people are facing very similar things. On this episode, psychologist Jennifer Patrioleri brings us her research into what she says are the three transitions that every modern-day working couple must get through if they have any hope of making their romantic and professional ambitions align and staying in their relationship. Don't worry. Jennifer also has tips and ways of dealing with your partner and your boss and your personal doubts about being able to hack it at work and at home. So if you're bringing home the bacon and you're part of a couple, ever have been or want to be, this show is for you. It's definitely for me. I'll tell you that. Zigzag will be right back after a quick break. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. 
It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. We're back. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. This is ZigZag. I'm Jennifer Petrolieri. I'm a professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD Business School, and I'm the author of Couples That Work. For the last 15 years, Jennifer has been researching careers, specifically leadership development. But it's really over the last decade that she started hearing professionals say this to her. You know, if you really want to understand my career, you need to talk to my partner and understand theirs because they're so intertwined. And I'm also part of a working couple. And that was my experience as well. I would never use the term power couple. I'm talking about the everyday couple in American life. If we look at America, two-thirds, more than two-thirds of all couples in America are working couples. So this is not an elite majority. But one of the things I found in my research was that the things we face, the challenges we face, are very, very common across couples, whether we are in our 20s, 30s, whether we're more established, whether we're in that real high income bracket, or whether we're sort of lower down that income bracket scale. We're all facing these things. What really fascinated me about your book was that you divided a couple's life, couples who both work, into three transitions. Can you just spell out what those transitions are and how you came to that? What I found was that, you know, it is challenging being in a working couple, but it's not challenging all the time. And I found that there were three particular periods, three transitions, where these struggles were the most intense. And then there were periods in between when life was a little bit smoother. The first transition all couples face in the first few years they get together. So if you think back to the early days of your relationship, there's this wonderful time, the honeymoon period, let's call it, where your lives are essentially on parallel tracks. So you've, you have this career you're growing, you have your friends network, and you've layered on top this wonderful relationship. And it's very exciting and it doesn't last long. Because always, <laughs> sadly, no, it does not last Sadly, long. no, always couples face some kind of hard choice that is the trigger of this first transition. It might be, you know, your partner gets offered a job on the other side of the country. What do you do, right? End of parallel living. Do you decide to follow them? Do you try decide to commute? Do you go your separate ways? Hard choice. It may be you have a child together. Now, for anyone who is a working parent, that is the end of parallel lives. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to make serious choices at that point. It might be a couple who've got together in later life. And the choice is, you know, do we blend our families from previous relationships? All of these signal this point where we have to, as a couple, answer the question, how are we going to make this work? How are we going to combine our lives in a way that enables us both to have the careers we want and have a decent relationship? And what I found in the first transition is the couples who just focused on the practicalities, no matter what they did, they could not make it work. 
So these are the couples who would get into these, you know, we've, we've synced all our Google calendars and we've, you know, <laughs> arranged all these timetables and it's still not working. And the reason it wasn't working is that they hadn't really got back to first principles and said, why are we doing this? What's the logic of our choices? And this is so critical at every stage, but especially for these transition one couples, because if we can get to those conversations about, you know, what really matters to me in my career is X, Y, Z, you know, this promotion, this developmental opportunity, and understand what that is for our partners, then we can build a life structure that supports both of our dreams. If we haven't had that conversation, we're just trying to fill in the practical gaps. Now, for someone who has not had that conversation, I'm wondering if you can actually share what happened to you. You tell a story in the book about early days of your romance with your partner, with your husband, and how he really took the lead on this whole idea of laying out what the priorities were going to be for your relationship. Yeah, we were both coming out of a series of failed relationships. And I think we were at the life stage where we knew we'd met our match mm-hmm. and we were like, okay, we, we want to do this differently. And so very early on, I think on our third or fourth date, we sat down and actually he's from Sicily and I'd gone to visit him for for New Year's in Sicily. And we sat down and we decided to just really take some time thinking about this and mapping it out. Now, to be clear, we were not mapping out a five-year plan, right? We're going to get married here and have the first child here. This is not what it was. It was really a conversation around, you know, what is important to us? What do we want to go for in life, Mm. both our careers and in our relationship? And then how are we going to make that work? And those conversations were so helpful for us. And of course, at the time, I didn't think of them in the way I described them in the book. You know, it was just this little experiment we were doing. But I've come to understand through the research with more than 100 working couples how instrumental those conversations were. Now, they didn't save us, nor do they save other couples from Mm -hmm. challenges. But what they do is just help couples negotiate those challenges a lot more easily. I was talking to my business partner about this first transition and the moments that you're talking about where, you know, push comes to shove, like you got to get through it or the relationship falls apart. And she was like, huh, that's what happened to my relationship. They just didn't make it through the hard stuff that came along during their first transition. Do you see that with a lot of couples? Yeah, and what I see is these transitions are really make or break periods for couples, and they really map onto these three transitions. And what I think about each transition is that each transition is a period where we build a new relationship. Now, of course, we all hope that new relationship is with the person we were with before the transition, but it's not always. It's not Mm. for every couple. And it is a period where, unfortunately, some couples go their separate ways. You know, I was talking to someone who had read the book and she was late 20s and she said, you know, I took it and and I sat with my boyfriend and we were reading it together and we had this conversation and we really realized we were fundamentally incompatible. Because, wow, really? Yes, because, uh, and it was because of this boundaries. They'd started to talk about long-term, where do you want to live? And she was from London and he was actually from Australia now, but he had a real strong desire that when he got to his late 30s, 40s, he wanted to be back in Australia and that was non-negotiable. And they'd never really talked about it so explicitly. And she said to me, you know, after that conversation, they did decide to go their separate ways. And she said to me, you know, on the one hand, I was heartbroken. And I also thought, thank goodness 
we talked about this now and not in five, 10 years time when, you know, we'd got married, there were a kid or whatever along the way. I mean, are we talking about just the old adage that a relationship is full of compromises? It's more than that, isn't it? It is much more than that. Of course, we all need to make compromises. But the problem with that logic is it sets relationships up as a little bit of a tit for tat. You know, I gave you this, you need to give me that. And what I see is that is the path to hell in a relationship, Mm. right? That I have my career and you have your career and we have to just keep bouncing the sacrifice between us. That is the worst way to go about it. The best way to go about it is to look at, okay, what do we want together And how can our careers facilitate this? What are the things that are important to us? Of course, that will include individual career ambitions, but it will also include, for example, building some financial stability that maybe later in life we can, you know, go an entrepreneurship route or make a radical career transition. Maybe what's important to us is making sure we have enough time to pursue another activity. Maybe it's about the kind of couple we want to be, right? We want to be in a really adventurous couple. So we want to make decisions to make sure we've got enough time to, you know, and maybe money as well to do some crazy trips each year. If we're very clear on what these are, then every time a decision comes up, we can look at it against this criteria and say, is this a good decision for our couple? And then, of course, we still have to make compromises, but they feel more like willing sacrifices. It's for the good of the whole, which is going to benefit me as well. I mean, the language that you're using is very often used by companies, right? What are the core goals of the company or the core values? And how do we make business decisions based on things that get us closer to achieving those core goals and sticking to our core values. It is such a good insight. And you know what I find time and time again is I'm sure many of your listeners, if I asked any of them, tell me about the vision for your career, they would be able to say something quite coherent. But if I asked you, tell me about the vision for your relationship, most people would look fairly blank eyed at me. (sighs) And it is crazy because we think about careers as something we need to invest in, we need to plan for, we need to have some goals, we need to have an idea. And we think of relationships like a fairy tale that we live happily ever after. Well, life is not like that. And the couples that do well apply in some ways the logic of their careers to their relationship. Now, I don't mean that in terms of an Excel spreadsheet and I'm planning year by year, but it's about those overall goals, the overall vision. What are you trying to get out of this? Like, why is this relationship worthwhile for you to be part of? These are really important questions for us to answer. When I speak to couples under sort of 45, late late 40s, the vast, vast majority are really committed to equality in their couple. And they are working very hard to try and make it work. But they are swimming against two tides. One is, you know, the older generation with their social norms and expectations, which is understandable, right? If your mum was the one who took on most of the work at home, she's obviously going to assume that you will do the same. And we can't blame those people. That's very normal. But I think in our companies, in our organizations, it's got to stop. And what's happening in our organizations is two things. If we look at the biggest trend in, if you like, the supply side of talent is the rise of working couples. And yet organizations are completely, really ignoring it. Mm. 
all of their talent management structures and processes are based on the logic of a talented worker with either a stay-at-home partner or a partner who has, if I might put it like this, a less important job for theirs. And to be fair, that was true 30 years ago. It just isn't true these days. Mm. But because that logic hasn't shifted, organisations are really letting working couples down and making them have to swim a lot harder than if organisations were more open to it. That's fascinating. I had um, an issue at work a few years back where I I think I needed to ask for a week off or something. So I, I needed to leave for some reason. And a, an older friend said to me, oh, just tell them that your husband needs you to do it. They'll accept that. And I was really torn because she was probably right. They probably would have been like, oh, okay, fine. But I was like, I am trying to change gender norms here. And so, no, I will not let my husband be the scapegoat. They don't need to know what my personal life is. It has no relevance. You know, it's really hard to talk in new ways when the people that you are talking to speak a different language almost, an an old-fashioned dialect in some ways. Yeah, and good for you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But I think a lot of us don't take that choice, right? And this is where the society gets stuck, is that we kind of suck it up. Organizations need to realize that our relationship patterns have changed dramatically. So if we look back to 30 years ago, we partnered off or we married people who were potentially very different to us in terms of their educational level, their potential and their ambition. So if I can take the classic example, you know, it was not unusual for the doctor to marry the nurse or the, you know, top lawyer to manage the legal assistant. That just doesn't happen anymore. And there's a social, it's actually got a horrible term. It's called assortative mating. <laughs> it's, a soci- it's awful, isn't it? It's a sociological term, which essentially means we are now pairing off with people with exactly the same education, potential and ambition as us. Today, if you hire a top talent, the likelihood is their partner is also a top talent and may even be a higher, more higher flyer than they are. Huh. And companies just have not cottoned on to this fact. Well, what should they do? What if they're like, well, that's their problem. They're going to have to figure it out. This is the job. Like it or lump it. They're going to have a big talent retention issue. <laughs> transition two is not linked to the stage of our relationship. If you think transition one comes in the early years, transition two is really linked to our career stage. And it tends to come around mid-career stage. Now, what's happening in this period is if we think about those two maybe decades of our career, which generally unfold in our 20s and 30s, it's a time when we're striving, right? We're building our careers. We're getting our first rungs on the career ladder. We're building our experience. And the path we take, the career path we take, While most people love to think it's their own, it's not. It's a combination of what we want and social expectations, right? So my parents pushed me in this direction. You know, maybe at my college, these companies were coming on campus and everyone was excited about them. So I applied or my friends were all doing this. So that's what I did too. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Many of these social expectations are good. They're from people who love us and want us to go in a good direction. But what almost always happens at mid-career is we take stock of our careers and many of us start feeling, yeah, I'm not sure this career path is really 100% mine. And it's a time when people think about what direction do I really want to go in? What do we really want out of life? What really is mine and mine alone, if I can shed these social expectations? 
And it's a really tough period for couples. Yeah. And what often happens in a couple when that is happening is it's very threatening to our relationship. So if I see my partner wrestling with questions of direction, then it's so easy for me to think, my goodness, is this about me? Is this my fault? Am I not enough? Is there something fundamentally wrong with my relationship? So it's a very tense time for couples. Mm. And what I find at this transition point is that the support we give each other in a couple needs to shift. Yeah. Now, what do I mean by that? If my partner gets a, you know, is upset about something, I dust them down, I plump up their self-esteem and I tell them they're wonderful. Now, everyone loves this kind of support, right? Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But at this point in life, it's not what we need. Because this support keeps us in our comfort zone. And when we're facing those more existential questions of direction, we've got to get out of that comfort zone. And we've got to explore new options and experiment with different things. Because it's only through that exploration and experimentation that we can really find, okay, what is the direction I want to go in and how do I make that transition? But of course, if in your couple you're getting pulled back into that comfort zone, It can feel very suffocating. And this is a stage in life in our couples where, you know, a lot of couples face conflict because of this support. Now, the support couples really need, and I talk about in the book, is what I call a secure-based relationship. Yeah. So a secure-based relationship means there is that loving support, but essentially there's almost a loving kick up the ass to push you (laughs) away from that comfort zone and say, okay, I understand you're facing these questions But you're not going to solve them by sitting on the couch and getting tea and sympathy. You're going to solve them by getting out there, trying new things and taking some risks. What I find interesting about that, though, is that that may not be in the best interest of the partner giving them the kick up the ass because it might make their lives harder in the short run, at least. Like if somebody needs to go out there and look for a new job that's going to stink for the partner having to deal with the angst that they bring home every day as they go on that search or the, you know, the the fallow periods when they can't find work or or whatever. It absolutely will. But this is short-term pain, long-term gain situation. Right. Okay, when we come back, Transition 3 with Jennifer Petrilieri. And my co-founder, Jen Coyant, will be here because I know she's got a lot to say about couples who don't manage to navigate these three transitions. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Manoush. We're back, and we're talking to the author of Couples That Work, Jennifer Petrilieri. And we're on to the final transition in the life cycle of a working couple's relationship, if they've made it that far. I have to say, hearing all of this, like, once again, proof that none of us are special snowflakes going through anything different than anybody else's. It's actually really comforting to hear that this is a pattern, and I can certainly trace my own steps against transition one, and I think we're now in transition two, pretty hardcore right now. But now, what is the future? I am very, very glad that I have what you've written about Transition 3 to prepare me for what is to come. Can you tell us about Transition 3? Yeah, but first I want to just touch on that 
commonality among them. So when I went into the research, I really talked to couples and tried to maximize the variety between them. So from all over the world, straight couples, gay couples, you know, couples who were in intercultural or interracial marriages. And I was thinking there might be some huge differences. And one of the things that surprised me most in the research was how, you know what, all couples across the world really face very, very similar challenges. And I think there's something comforting in that because it's not about a problem with our relationship. It's not about who we are or that we're fundamentally incompatible. These are things that we all go through. And my hope with the book is to give people sort of a roadmap to think through, you know, how they can tackle those. So transition three. Um, so I'm at a similar stage with you, very much in the depths of transition two. And mm. I loved talking to the transition three couples, partly because it's that future telling, right? <laughs> yes. Transition three happens a little bit later in our careers. And it's really sparked by a change in our social roles. So this is a time when we're no longer the up and coming bright young thing in the organization, right? We're now, if we're lucky, we're leading and mentoring those people. Maybe if we've had children, they've flown the nest. So we're no longer those active parents. And we're really facing the last period in our careers. And that can come with a sense of loss, mm. right? If I've not reached that real position of seniority I was aiming for, yeah, maybe I'm not going to do that anymore. You know, who am I now that I'm not that hands-on parent, that bright young thing? At the same time, it's a period of immense opportunity. And we're living in a time when couples of that stage have options that no generation has ever had before them. And that's due to two things. One is, thankfully, we are all living longer, yeah, right. which means our careers are longer. There's lots of options around freelancing, portfolio careers, part entrepreneurship. Really, there's very creative things we can do at that stage of life when some of those big commitments are behind us that just were not open to previous generations. And so when I spoke to Transition 3 couples, I really found two broad types of couples. There were couples who were very much struggling with the loss, right? Mm. And it was a difficult time and maybe relationally as well, right? They might have been sweeping resentments under the carpet for years for the sake of the kids, etc. They were in a tough spot. There were also couples who were feeling really free, right? I'm at this stage where, you know, for all these years I've been talking about when I have the time, I will dot, 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 right? be more involved in the community, do some volunteer work, you know, transition to freelancing. And suddenly they were able to. And so there was real hope in these transition three couples that some of them were in periods of huge reinvention in a way that they could not do in transition two or transition one. And we're really coming up with some super innovative solutions for that last period of their careers, which nowadays is a very substantial period. Mm. And there's a way in which we can reinvent ourselves in some really exciting ways. I have to ask, though, I remember a friend of mine telling me, he said, I looked at my wife and I was like, who are you again? Um, <laughs> or some of them are like, oh, well, we did this job together raising this, this family, these kids, but th now... We don't have that thing that we were before the kids came along. Absolutely. And we do know, unfortunately, at this time, 
there is a very big spike of divorce and it's called, and again, I hate this term, but in the US, it's this rise of the grey divorce, right? (laughs) I know it's a horrible term, (laughs) but it is a fact. And part of the reason why there's such a spike of divorce there is exactly what you were saying, right? We've had this joint project, the kids, it's gone and what's left of our relationship. The other reason there's a rise of divorce at this time is because we have this expanded period now of life where we're likely to be healthy, we have opportunities in our career, and we have a period of reinvention. And I think the question for couples is, are you going to do it with each other or are you going to do it with somebody else? And it looks as if more couples are taking that second decision and doing it, you know, with someone else. And of course, that's a personal choice. But my research shows that many couples can also do it with each other and really get that reinvention. Mm. And so I think if you follow the steps, and there's a lot of advice in the book for how you grab these opportunities together, there is the potential to do it together. You don't necessarily have to do that reinvention with another person. I want to just ask you if there's, well, a double-ended question. If there's one thing partners listening to this conversation should take away. What is it? And if there's one thing an employer listening to this conversation should take away. For couples, I'm going to say the road to hell and what you should do. So the (laughs) thing that I consistently saw in couples that really was the road to hell was when they got an imbalance of power in the couple. Now, what I mean by power in, in a relationship is who gets the shot to pursue what they want, right? Who gets the support and the opportunity in the couple to pursue what they want, whether that's a career goal or something else. And when this became imbalanced, it was pretty difficult for couples to recover from this. Now, if you were to do anything tonight with your partner, what would you do? I think the most important thing to avoid that trap and to really be able to work through the transitions is to take time to really sit down and talk about three things. What really matters to us? Lay out the principles of your relationship. The second is what are the lines we're not going to cross? Whether it's geography, work, travel, time, whatever that is, it's really important to define the boundaries of our relationship. And the third thing is, what are the things we're afraid of happening? Now, this is harder to discuss, right? But time and time again, I found that couples who discussed this were just a lot better at managing each other's concerns and anxieties and led to less conflict and a real happy relationship. So for all your listeners tonight, you go home, mm. talk about those Sounds three things fun, huh? and then email me and tell me about the conversations. No, I'm, I mean, I'm serious. It's, it's really important and develop a habit of those conversations. And I think for some people, they're like, oh, I, you know, I, I'm not sure my partner would want to talk about this stuff. I, I feel anxious about it. I mean, who does not really want to talk about the things that matter most to them in life? You know, if you've not got the habit of talking about these things, it might feel a bit clunky at first, but these are the conversations we all crave with each other, you know, to really talk about what is meaningful to us and to develop that habit is so healthy in our relationships. Then I think for organizations, we've got to shift the model of how we think about talent. What most working couples want and need is to work exactly the same hours as everyone else, but just have a little bit of flexibility about when and where they do that work. Because if you're getting the results, who cares whether you do the work at two o'clock in the morning or two o'clock at the afternoon? It makes no difference. 
Agreed with that. I just don't think there's any way of surviving. I think, thank goodness for that marginal flexibility, because otherwise I would have ended up not pursuing my career. Yeah, and it's, it's just too hard. And it's interesting. And when we look at women's careers and increasingly men's careers, they don't drop out or they don't shift career for big things. They shift for actually quite small things. You know, my employer wouldn't let me start early and finish early. That is just crazy. You know, why would you not do that? My employer wouldn't let me occasionally take time out in a day without making me feel horribly guilty, even though I caught up with it in the evening. You know, there's no reason. This just has to stop in organizations. Jennifer Petrieri, thank you so much for taking the time. It was kind of like a therapy session meets macro anthropological study meets career coaching. Uh, what could be better? <laughs> <laughs> My kind of discussion. Thank you again. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, that was Jen Petrieri. Her book, again, it's really, it's a really good book, you guys. Couples That Work. I found it very helpful. My husband's now like, well, what does Jennifer Petrieri say? Okay, but I now want to bring into the conversation my other Jen in my life, my Stable Genius Productions co-founder, Jen Poyant. Hello. Hey, yo. Um, <laughs> sorry, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> so, uh, do we just drive into it, like, Well, can I, I want to actually respond to the very last thing because I, I will say. Yes. Oh, the last thing that Jennifer said? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. We have that in our lives to some extent now because we've made it with our own businesses. Yes. And I think that's incredible. And it gives me hope that once I reach the first or second transition in the future with someone. Yeah. That I'll be more supported at work. Yes. Which is cool. I got to say, like, the flex situation, we say it all the time. It's awesome. It's the best part about running your own business, really. It really is. But so you are divorced, Jen. Was that your, like, speed bump when you were listening to Jennifer describe what can happen in Transition 1, this idea that a couple's, like, really enjoying each other's company and they work really well as a couple, but then, like, something happens and it's either make or break time? That's exactly what happened. And... We had, like, a really long, lovely honeymoon period. Long. I mean, we had met um, when we were in our late 20s, had, like, a long courtship, eventually got married, waited about a year after we got married to finally have a baby. And, you know, we were together for kind of a long time to to finally get to that big transition, and the transition was working and having a baby. It makes me wonder if people who get to the transition one faster— I wonder if it's maybe, easier that way in maybe, some way, you it, know? It, maybe. We definitely, it was like, you know, nobody nobody really warns you of, like, all the stuff that she's talking about, which I really no. appreciate. Like, there was a really sad point after I had the baby where, you know, I had a really high-pressure job, a daily news position, and I was a senior-level producer doing it. And, you know, we got to the point where we had lists on clipboards of, like, what he'd done and what I'd done. And you know, she said that's a trap, right? Like, you know that's not a good place for a marriage to be. Not a good place. But so what I didn't include in the interview that I wanted to talk to you because I thought you'd find it really interesting, she talks about um, the different models of child care. So the baby comes along, right? And she 
she talked about these different ways that couples set it up. So the first one is, is that one of the members of the couple becomes the primary breadwinner and the other one sort of slows down a bit, right? And so that's what my husband and I did. Like he was full steam ahead with his career. I went down to like part-time, freelance, two days a week. And then there's another one where both of them keep their careers going big time and they either bring on like extra help Mm -hmm. or like I, I had friends who worked at the BBC where one of them only took newsroom shifts that started at 5 in the morning. Yeah. And the other one went in as the other one was coming home. So just ships passing Sh- in the night. Ships in the night. Yeah. And they never had to get childcare help. They never saw each other, but they never got childcare help. They're still married, I should point out. I think they're still married. Wow. Yeah. And then the third is turn-taking where they say, like, they plan it out which sounds kind of crazy to me, but this is where, let's say, one of the couples, the husband or whoever says, you know, I'm going to go big on my career for the next five years, and then after that, I'll pull back, yeah. and then you go big for the next five years after that. <laughs> That's and funny. Isn't that interesting? Well, yeah, because I think—and I, I should just say, because I am talking about my ex-husband, that he's a good person, and I just want to put that out of there. Of course. That, you know, yes. but I think we felt like we were trying to do one and three is that the third? <laughs> Which ones? The ones where you, like, take turns. So the the where you take turns, but then one person has, like, more of a big breadwinner role, and then the other person pulls back. But we did a kind of a mix of all three because we also had our son at a daycare during the day. I mean, which just goes to show, like, no one is just one. You're pretty much muddling it through and trying to do the best you can, right? Because, right. like, some of the stuff is out of your control. Like, how do you go to your boss and be like, it's my turn now. For the next five years, could you please advance me to yeah, my maximum exactly. potential? And then I won't be able to carry on after that, though, because I'll be passing the baton to my partner. Like, right. And nobody that, says that. It's interesting because, like, listening to her, I totally recognized the transition phases that she was talking about, particularly the, the first one because we didn't get through it. And yeah, there were other circumstances, too. We had a natural disaster we had to get through. Sandy, Hurricane Sandy yeah. destroyed much of where you live. Right, which is like, right, you know, our son was 10 months old at the time. So there were other stresses as well. But you're right. Like, it doesn't work exactly the way she's talking about once you get real. And I'm sure she understands this. But, you know, once you get into the messiness of relationships and marriage and other feelings that come up and all of that stuff like it's not as feelings. clean as 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 maybe she portrays it but at the same time if we had had some guidance that this was actually a phase that is very predictable and yeah right maybe some guidance on how to deal with it when it comes up and um, can I just lay one more thing on you? Sure. She says that the most popular model and the most successful model, meaning like it worked for couples, yeah. not like they both killed it at their careers, but just that they like made it work, was the double primary model, which— That's great if you have the money, though. My ex-husband and I were were young enough that we—like even if we could have both gone crazy with our careers, we would both would have been making like still tiny amounts of money. Like, we couldn't have afforded that. Well, but this is what she found. What can we say? Well, good for those people that have the money. (laughs) I'm sorry. Like Well, I think she was saying, like, if you both are working, then, like, you can pay for the daycare. But what I'm saying is, like, that was literally not possible. Like, he was an architect, like, a young architect, and I was a young public radio journalist. And, like, even if you're both working, you're going to bring home, at that point in stage in your career, in your late 20s, early 30s, you're going to bring home... Not enough money. Not nearly enough money, especially not in New York City. We had no family around. I'm just saying, like, it's not that simple. It's never that simple. And, like, I can understand why those people would make it through and people like us wouldn't. 
Uh, here's where I give my shout-out to my mom, uh, who, for the first 10 years of my son's life, came uh, one or two nights a week so that I could work through this whole period. Shout-out to mom. Shout-out to mom. That's mom. awesome. Yeah. And I think you sent me, like, this, some article in the New York Times about women trying to get back into the workplace who took time off and just how freaking hard that is. Yes. Yeah. She, she didn't want me to take, like, take my foot off the gas because I think she's new. Here's like, here's an embarrassing – well, not embarrassing, but I'm – I look back on it now and I'm so glad I didn't take anything off besides the maternity leave that I took. I'm so glad I went, went back full steam. Because of your career. Yeah. It's weird. We forget how – Despite sh- a divorce. Dis- yeah. It's, that's pretty harsh. No, I don't think it's harsh. I'm really glad I stayed in the market. You are who you are, Jen. You do you as everyone – like, is everyone saying that now? You do yeah. you? Yeah, or live in your tr- – stand in your truth or live in your truth. Uh, I'm going to wrap this one up. I do have a question for listeners, though. I want to ask listeners. We hear a lot sort of around the edges about this idea of being, you know, obviously worried about the environment, climate change. Uh, yeah, on our minds all the time. But here's what I want to ask you. Have you changed – your business or your work habits to be more environmentally friendly? Like, if so, how? Jen, when she remembers, which is most of the time, carries around this pack of bamboo utensils so that she doesn't have to use plastic silverware from takeout companies. So good on you, Jen. I'm trying. She's trying. So it could be that small. Or it could be something huge that you were like, well, we decided we would not do one-day shipping because of carbon. I don't know. It could be anything. We're dying to know. Please tell us. Also, did people support you for your change at work? Or maybe you got pushback from your customers or coworkers who liked getting car services home or takeout in plastic containers. I don't know. I, that's why we're asking. Please tell us. You can email us. We love it when you record a voice memo because we like putting your voice on this show. And please send it to zigzag at stableg.com. That is zigzag at stableg.com. I'll put it in the newsletter, this question in the newsletter as well. What? You're not signed up for the newsletter? Come on. It's only every two weeks. Sign up. It's good stuff, right? Yeah, it's awesome. We <laughs> It's really good. Jen and I really enjoy it. I put a little letter in there, put links to articles. We have the artwork by our fabulous illustrator. You can sign up at StableG.com. Shall we go? Let's go. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant with help from Marcy Thompson. Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio is our audio engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wartell is our production coordinator. And many thanks to Anya Zhezik for her audio engineering smarts, too. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Share the episode. Oh, yeah, share the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it so low? It's this one. Okay, now I'm good. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. One, two, one, two, one, two. Am I good? Two.